The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, church. If you could please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're reading from a Black Pew Bible in front of you, we're reading from James 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, found on page 950. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'd like to invite up Will Henry this morning. Will's going to be preaching uh, for us this morning. Um, we had the pleasure of hearing from Will uh, during the summer when Jonathan was on, on sabbatical. Um, Will is a, uh, a faithful brother, a friend, uh, husband, and I made the tall joke last time, so I'm going to refrain from the tall joke this time. But uh, Will, I'm, I'm thankful for you. Uh, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for my friend Will. I pray that you would uh, help him this morning, that you would uh, speak through him. Your power would rest upon him. And Lord, for us as hearers of your word preached, I pray that you would help change our hearts to make them more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can you all hear me? Perfect. Thank you, Brian. All righty. The book of James. Um, I honestly think that God has a great sense of humor. Uh, And of course, God does because he's the one who created humor. Uh, approximately about two months ago, I think it was about when Jonathan had asked me if I'd be willing to do this, and he even said that I could choose the, uh, the passage that we'd go through, and so I thought, let's choose James, you know, count it all joy. That's a, that's a great one for us to go through, and I would say that the last two months have been um, some of the most trying times that I've probably had in a long time. It's been, a, been quite stressful for me. Um, my wife knows as well, it's been mentally taxing for her, it's been mentally taxing for me, it's been very busy at work. I've had um, a lot of early, early mornings, a lot of really late nights. Uh, I've had a lot of weekends that I had to work. I had a lot of holidays that I missed, um, some time that I missed away from my family. And I'm, we've, I've been tired. My wife's been tired. Uh, we still have some things. I still have some things I need to get done over the next few days. I'm not really sure 
how, I will, uh, I'll knock those out. But if God has a perfect sense of humor, God also has perfect timing. And so it's been, a, it's been perfect for me to be able to just work through this um, and think um, over the past two months. But at the same time, it's not a pity party for me because I also know that many of you are going through trials or have been going through trials. I know there are people right now in this audience that I've talked to and over the last few weeks or last few months that they've had uh, family members that have passed away. We have people who have health conditions that they're dealing with uh, or have family members that are dealing with health conditions that they're suffering and they're wanting to know what are the, what's the answer? How are we going to figure out this situation? Um, we know there are people in here in the audience. I know that I've had some broken relationships and trust and that they're struggling with. Um, we've got people who've got job issues. They're, they're waiting for a job. They're waiting for some type of employment and they're waiting for God to provide an answer. And uh, you know, we, we have our own timing that we desire, but it doesn't necessarily happen when we want it and how we want it. Um, there's people who have financial loss, um, just a lot, of, a lot of different things that go on in our lives. And so the reality is, is that trials, they're not, they're not unique to a few people. That they happen to all of us. All of us have trials. All of us suffer. Um, it's the human condition. No one's immune. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, we have trials. But what is unique for us as Christians is that we actually are told that we can rejoice in trials, that despite whatever happens in our life, we can actually rejoice. But then naturally, the question that we have as Christians is, how is that possible? How is it when we're sick, when we're stressed, when we can't figure out how we should go about situations, when we're hurting, how is it that we can actually rejoice whenever we encounter trials? That's the question that we as Christians, we constantly ask. And so, um, thankfully, James is going to provide us some answers. So, what we're, of course, going to do, uh, we're going to work through this passage of James, and we'll cover three points that I think James' point brings up that helps us rejoice during trials. Uh, and the first point that we'll cover is our attitude in trials. But first, we'll start by reading verses 1 and 2 and working, of course, through verse 1 and get an idea of who the person is that um, we're reading or who's writing this, this, this letter, this book. So we read verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So it tells us immediately that our author is James, and commentators, historians, scholars, they say that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So, uh, you know, if you read through the book of the New Testament, or you read through the New Testament, you're going to see there's multiple James, but the consensus is, is that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. So if we know about uh, James, we look in the Bible, we'll see that James actually was not a believer in Jesus during his earthly ministry which is actually kind of interesting. And we were kind of talking about it in my house that you know, people might think that's shocking. How could James, you know, he grew up with Jesus. How could he not be a follower of Jesus? But if you think about James, he probably had a lot to process if you think of growing up with Jesus as your brother. I mean, he grew up in a household where his mother is Mary and Joseph. And, you know, the fact that Mary is a virgin, Jesus is virgin born, although we believe that as Christians and we believe there's evidence for that, you can imagine that the neighbors probably, there was a little bit of tension there, or some shame that may have come to the family based off of that, that understanding or what they're saying. And then, of course, just the fact that you have to process that your brother, your older brother, is the God of the universe or the Messiah. I would imagine that's probably not something, that isn't something that any of us had to deal with. So that's something that process too. Um, and talking about this with my family, uh, my daughter asked, you know, do you think that Jesus, when he was a kid, did miracles? And so you just think, you know, was Jesus running with his friends? He trips, scrapes his knee, uh, just heals it, keeps on running with his friends. I mean, did, did Jesus do things like that? I mean, or when they went out and they played soccer with their friends, you know, James always wanted Jesus to be goalkeeper because, you know, Jesus saves. And so, you know, that's kidding. 
just kidding. Obviously, obviously, we would see from Scripture that Jesus didn't arbitrarily use his power for things like that. I think it's very clear that Jesus used um, his power for the sake of his ministry. And so anyway, um, I, I imagine that, you know, although there weren't necessarily miracles that Jesus was just doing arbitrarily in the household, uh, for sure Jesus was different. Jesus wouldn't have sinned. Uh, Jesus would have, he would have never lied, he would have never stolen, he would have never cheated. And so these are obviously things that, that James would have seen and when he had to process. Um, I was also telling my, my, talking to my family too, and I mean, if you think about it, this whole what would Jesus do movement that started maybe in the 20th century probably actually started in Mary and Joseph's household. And I'm guessing James probably got tired of it because he's constantly hearing those types of things. So we joked about that, that Jesus, there was evidence that Jesus was different. But nonetheless, James had a lot to process, and the Bible tells us that James eventually got it. We see in the New Testament that um, James becomes a follower of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus appeared to James before all the apostles. And then we also know that James became a leader uh, in the Jerusalem church. So Galatians 2 tells us, uh, Paul tells us that James was one of the esteemed leaders he met with in Jerusalem when he wanted to be sure he had not been running his race in vain. In verse 9 of Galatians, it lists James, as, James first among Peter and John as esteemed pillars who gave Paul the right hand of fellowship. So this is who we're dealing with. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and someone who is seen as a, an esteemed leader, respected by Paul and many Christians. And so naturally, this audience, he would have been respected by his audience. He would, they would have looked at James or looked to James for guidance and wisdom. And verse 1 tells us that his audience is the 12 tribes and the dispersion. So if we look in the New Testament... We're going to see that there are, there's tension between the Christians and the Jews and the Christians and the Romans. That's just what we see throughout the New Testament, we see in history. And so, um, naturally, James' audience was the 12 tribes of the dispersion. What that means is that we see in uh, Acts that with the growth of Christianity, it brought persecution. So in Acts 9, we see Stephen was, they call him the first martyr. He was stoned to death. And then after that, there were many Christians who were being killed. We know that Paul, formerly Saul, was one of those people that was doing that. They were being killed, they were being beaten, they were being dragged from their homes. And so they were being persecuted. And as a result, a lot of them fled and they dispersed to various parts of the Roman Empire. So James is writing his letter to these people. These are people that he would have likely known many of them. And as we see through the book of James, a lot of them have trials because of what's going on, because they're not conformist. And so they're suffering because of that. They would have had death of loved ones. They would have had poor health. They would have had a loss of job, loss of status. Some of them were beaten. Some of them, had, they, were, they had been oppressed. And so James talks about that later on in this book. So James writing to this audience, many of which he likely knew well, and in this book as a whole, uh, James is teaching us how to live practically as Christians. And specifically in this passage, James is going to teach us how we should look at trials and why we can rejoice in trials. And so the first thing, for our first point that we learn about trials is our attitude in trials. So point one, if we look at verse one, we notice that James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's important because James considers himself a servant. He considers himself a slave to the God of the universe, which essentially he is saying, God is in charge of everything and I am subject to God. Whatever I desire, it can't come before what God desires. So he's saying that whatever God's, God's objective is, his agenda can never be, come before God's objective. And so essentially, we should think likewise. That's the first thing that we have to take into our life, that we are servants of God. It's God's will always before my will. And God ultimately knows what's best and wants what's best. So the first thing is that we are servants. Now as we move to verse 2, we're going to read the following, which is, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So another thing that James wants us to know about trials is that we should expect trials. He doesn't say if we have trials. He says when you meet trials. Part of the confusion for Christians in the world in general is that we have this idea that, hey, if we're really good boys and girls or because we're Christians, I became a Christian, now my life's going to be smooth, it's going to be rainbows and unicorns, everything's going to be great, but that's just, that's not the case. That's actually not what Scripture says. We can, be, we can be doing right, we can be doing good, and the reality is we can still have trials. Scripture says that. The reality is we live in a fallen world, and so the result that there's sickness, there's death, there's injustice, there's imp- oppression, essentially that there are going to be trials. And we know this because, uh, and we shouldn't be deceived, because God has told us that this would happen. We have many verses that talk about it. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. We, many of us know that. 1 Peter 1 and 6 mentions that we should rejoice, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. 2 Timothy 3 and 12 says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in, G- in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus also said, the world hated him, so they'll hate you. So ultimately, we should expect trials. We are subject to God's will, and God tells us we're going to have trials. We should expect it. We shouldn't be surprised. Now, the hard part, I think, of verse 2 is probably the first part where James says, to count it all joy, or in some versions, you'll see the word consider. So that word consider, that word count, it's actually an accounting term. Um, It's not a feeling. The word means to make a deliberate or calculated decision about our trials. And I admit this is a bit confusing because we often think of the word joy as a feeling, as an emotion that comes up, you know, on our birthday or when we get a gift or something. But that's not, that's not what James is saying. He's not telling us that we should be or feel happy or smile through the pain or the difficulty of our trials. Uh, what he's saying is despite the difficulty that, that the trials bring, if we properly assess, if we properly look at our, our trials, then we'll realize the value of the trials and realize that it's an opportunity for joy. It's an opportunity for a calm gladness or a fullness of joy in the midst of our trials, knowing that ultimately everything is going to be all right. That's what James is telling us. Not because it's difficult or sad or painful, or not because, uh, but, but primarily to know that because of the end result. So one example that you could probably think of that maybe might hopefully bring this home is that you all are sitting in your seats right now, and let's say your legs start to feel tight, they start to feel tired, you're starting to sweat, your heart's starting to beat, well, you would probably get a little nervous because it's not normal for that to happen while you're sitting in your chair. But if you're in the gym and you're running on a treadmill and you start to feel tired and your legs are a little bit tired and your body's a little bit stressed, you would have a calmness. You would expect that this is normal because that stress, even though you feel stressed, even though you feel tired, ultimately it's working out to your benefit. You know that you're going to benefit it from, it, from, the down, from it down the road. And so James is saying that's how our trials work, that there's an advantage to our trials and despite the fact that we may be sad or difficult or not know what's going on, we can be guaranteed as Christians that it will work out for our benefit down the road. I think there's also another note that I was thinking of prior to coming up here too, is that sometimes we can feel like, you know, we hear the count of all joy, and we think, once again, it's not a feeling. It's not telling us to have this emotion. But we might feel as though, you know, I'm failing because, I, you know, someone passed away and I'm sad about it. That's not the case. Jesus wept, and it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have a proper understanding of when he should be joyful. He knew exactly what that meant. And so, if we're dealing with trials because we're sad or we're confused, that doesn't mean that we're not, we're not doing it the right way. He wants us to know, to know that in our, in our situation, in our trials, that ultimately there's an advantage um, to our trials. So, let me. so if we consider our trials properly, as, as James is telling us, we'll find that they're an opportunity for joy because they work to our advantage. 
which brings us to verses 3 and 4, which is the advantage of trials, which is point 2. So we read verses uh, 3 and 4. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James is saying the advantage of trials is that they're a testing of our faith. And this word testing that is used here in the New Testament, it's the same word that's used to explain what's done to gold and silver, that they heat up silver to high temperatures, and by doing so, they can purify it. They can remove the, the impurities, and it makes it more valuable. It makes, it makes it stronger. And so essentially, he's saying that trials are good because they test our faith. They test our ability to trust God. Uh, so if you think about that, if you think of the person that you may trust the most, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's your spouse, ultimately that person that you probably trust the most is not because they were there only when things were good or when you know, you're really happy and things are perfect. It's because they probably were there with you when you went through difficult things or even when you're at, at your worst. It's because they were able to endure. You could trust them through these difficult times. And so essentially um, that's, something, that's what James is saying is that, that our testing, it improves our faith. It makes it more steadfast. It produces steadfastness. It helps us to trust God more through difficult times. If you look in chapter 2, you'll know that James is the one who says that um, faith without works is dead. He realizes that if we say that we believe something, ultimately what that's going to result in, it's going to result in some actions. There's going to be some actions that come from that. If I say I love my wife or I love my children, you're going to see actions that represent that belief. And so essentially James is saying when, when we have tests, that's going to bring out what we believe, and that's what we should look forward to. <clears throat> so the result, ultimately, of these tests that we have in our life is steadfastness. And then he says that steadfastness has its full effect, and that is that we be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we have to remember that, ultimately, God's goal for his servants, God's goal for us, it's not that God would give us all sorts of wealth. It's not that he gives us all, all sorts of health. It's not that he gives us fame or power. God does not promise that he's going to give us that on earth. God's goal for us as children is that he wants to increase our faith. He wants to make us more perfect. He wants to make us complete. He wants to make us Christ-like. And God will use what he needs to use to get us there. And so tests are one of those ways that get us to that point. Uh, there's a, good, there's a good, good quote by Charles Spurgeon that goes like this. It says, The most valuable thing a person can obtain in this world is that which has most to do with his truest self. A man may acquire a good house, but suppose he's in bad health. What is the good of this fine mansion? The best thing is that which will make him a better man, make him right, true, pure, and holy. If our afflictions tend by trying our faith to breed endurance, and that endurance tends to make us into mature and complete people in Christ, then we may be glad of trials. So the short version is, if it's trials that actually make us more mature and complete in Christ, then we should, be, we should welcome and be glad of trials. That's what he's saying. That's what James is saying. That's what Charles Spurgeon is saying. Now, if we look back at, at verse 3, it's interesting that James says that we already know this. He says that we know that the testing of our faith produces a steadfastness. He says we know this. That word literally in Greek, it means knowing through experience. So if you think about it, um, you can think of plenty of examples in life. If we think of tests that we, that we have taken at school, tests make us better. One, knowing that we're going to have a test, we generally should study, and that's going to give us knowledge that helps us. When we take that test, that tells us where we're at, that can give us a level of encouragement because we know that what has happened in the past has been successful. And even if we fail the test, we at least find out what we need to know so that we can make improvements. And so there's benefits. We see that in real life regarding tests. 
Another example that we could also think of is with sports. If a person wants to be a great athlete, they're not just going to sit on the couch and pray that all of a sudden they're better at shooting or they're better at throwing a football. We know it just doesn't work like that. What happens is they have to work. They have to strain. They have to get in the gym. And in the process of straining and stressing themselves, they become better. They get much better at what they're, what they're looking to do. And so essentially he's saying that if we want to be as an athlete, we want to get better, we get in the gym. If we want to be spiritually better, we want to have character, well, God puts us in the spiritual gym. He gives us trials. He helps us become more like him. And there's other great examples that we would also see in the Bible, as many, but I think if David kind of completes this whole cycle that we see here in uh, verses 3 and 4, if you recall when David was, agreed that he wanted to fight against Goliath and they bring David before Saul, if you recall, Saul questions David, and probably rightly so, who is this kid? Why do you think that you could fight Goliath? You're a kid, and Goliath is a warrior. He's this giant warrior. What makes you think that you could fight this warrior? And if you remember what David's response was, he says that the God who delivered me from the paw of the bear and the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion, he will, de he will deliver me from this Philistine. David reflected on previous trials that God was faithful, faithful through for him, and he had confidence that God will be able to do the same thing in the future. And so, once again, we see that James is showing us these, the process that by having our faith tested, that helps us to test or to trust God more, and that continues to breed in us what we need to have more complete, more, be more perfect, and have more, more uh, character that's representing of what God wants in us. So, God's goal for our lives is to make us like him, and James tells us the advantage of trials is that they are a method by which God makes us complete and improves our character so that we'll lack nothing. Now, obviously, because trials uh, by nature are difficult, James also informs us that we have assistance for trials, which moves us to our point three. So if we go to verse five, we see that James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So James says, if any of us lacks wisdom, and likely we will, because we're limited in experience, we're limited in perspective, we're limited in knowledge, well then we can go to God, who's not limited in all of that. He's infinite in all of that. And so as we go through trials, the assistance that we have, James is saying that we can come to God, and that God will give it to us generously. He's more than glad to give us that knowledge, or give us that wisdom. It's not knowledge. Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is having information, but wisdom is knowing how to use that information for the best outcome, and God is the one who can provide that for us. Because God knows, what best, knows what's best, James tells us to go to God. And of course, why wouldn't God provide us wisdom? You can think about it just like a professor. If you've been in school or when you were in school, your professor is giving you a test, but your professor doesn't want you to fail. He's given you the material beforehand so that when you come to the test, you can pass it and you can continue to progress. And as I've seen, maybe you've seen too, it's generally the students that go to the professor regularly so they can make sure that they do well in the test, those are the ones who typically do very well. Which, as we see in the next verse, we kind of see the contrast where James tells us the qualifier for asking for wisdom. In verses 6 through 8, James says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So he says, ask without doubting. Part of life and the purpose of trials is the fact that we learn to trust God, knows what he's doing, 
all the time, even when we don't. And so trials can help us come to God and continue to learn and grow in our knowledge as we should. But at the same time, we can't be double-minded. If we trust God sometimes, then of course there's benefit to that. But when we decide to go and do our own thing or trust other sources that are outside of what God says, then we're going to be back and forth. We're going to be double-minded, and our life's going to reflect that. And I think there's some similarities we can think back with the professor once again. If you're going and you're studying, you're listening to what a professor says, you're likely to be successful. But if you're doing your own thing, you're not there in class, you're not paying attention, you don't care what the professor says, well then ultimately you're going to waver. You're going to see your grades are going to fluctuate because of that. And so ultimately the assistance that we see and the encouragement that we get from James is that we should trust God because God knows best. So now that brings us to verses 9 through 11. Um, where it says, Let the lowly bo- brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James would have had many people, as we see in the book of James, many people in his audience who are not well off because of persecution and oppression. But he also had some people who were wealthy. And so Dr- James addresses both. Um, based off of how they might encounter trials. To the lowly, he says, boast in our heavenly position. Children, we're children of God, of the God of the universe. We're forgiven of our sins, and we can have confidence that God will work our circumstances to our benefit. Our value ultimately lies in how God views us. It's not based off of our wealth or our power or our status, and James wants us to remember that. But at the same time, he says to the rich, remember the frailty of life and wealth and be humble. Wealth is not the standard by God assesses our value, <clears throat> and so neither should we. Our value ultimately lies in God alone. So in verses 5 through 11, James walks us through the assistance that we have in our trials. And he reminds us that we should ask God for wisdom, and God will generously give it to us. But we should do so without doubting, knowing that God is the ultimate source for wisdom, and he knows what's best. And then whether we're poor or rich, that we should know that our value ultimately lies in God, not our wealth or status with men. Now the end result, uh, we see this in verse 12 where we read, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So this crown of life that John, or I'm sorry, James speaks of, and his audience uh, would have immediately thought, they wouldn't have thought of like a gold gem-studded crown that God's going to put on our head. That's not what, what James is talking about. They would have thought of a wreath that's put on an athlete's head at the end of the Olympics. After running this race, after enduring and training in these various trials, they've completed the race, and so they've won, and they are given this crown that honors them. That's their reward for their efforts. And that's what essentially what he's saying. And it's the idea that at the end of our life, when we've persevered and we live for what's, what matters, when we've endured trials, um, God will reward us with this crown of life, with eternal life, Uh, with a complete life, which is the best life that we could ever have, and one that we couldn't obtain without God. He's essentially saying this is why we can rejoice through our trials, because this is ultimately what we're working towards and what we'll be rewarded with. So as we we conclude and we think about what James has said, um, we can be We can know that here on earth, God has not promised us that we'll have great wealth. We see that in scriptures that we will have trouble, we will have trials. He hasn't promised us that we're going to have great health here on earth or some great status. But he has promised that through all of our trials, us as his followers, that we endure here on earth, that he'll work it out to our benefit despite how we may see or how the situation may look at the moment. And we should remember that. That's the reason why us as Christians, uniquely, we can rejoice when we go through trials, because ultimately we know that they're going to bring what is best for us. 
And we live in a world where we've seen examples of that. We can think of Joseph in the Bible, where I'm sure when he got sold into slavery by his own brothers, he ends up as a slave for multiple years, ends up being thrown in prison all throughout, representing God well. It's probably pretty hard for him to think, how is this going to work out to my benefit? This is a, that's a trial, we would all say. But we also know that in this world where God is sovereign, we can look back at Joseph's life and we can see that God brought him all the way to the end. He was number two in all of Egypt. He ended up saving Egypt and his brothers from a famine. And he was able to look at the situation when he encountered his brothers to forgive them and say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. At the end of the day, he was able to see how God can take trials and he can work them out for his good in a way that we would have never been expecting from the beginning. And then, of course, for those who may, we may possibly think, you know, if we're good, we're never going to have issues, which we know is not the case based off of Scripture. We see Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was nothing but kind. Jesus helped the lame walk. He helped the deaf hear. He helped the blind see. And he raised people from the dead. And yet Jesus was beaten. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was killed. And yet we also see that how God worked to where Jesus was risen from the dead. And here we are, over 2,000 years later, our lives are changed because of the trial or what Jesus was willing to endure. And so that's the pattern that we see throughout life. God always knows what he's doing. So there's numerous examples of God using trials for the benefit of the individual. Um, and as servants of the God of the universe, we can always have confidence that God already has and will continue to do the same for us. So we can look at the book of James, we can look at the passages, and we can remember those three things, that there's a certain attitude that we should take to our life and take to our trials. That we're servants of the God of the universe, that's important, we should always keep that in mind. Um, we should know that we should expect trials, that trials are going to happen in our life, it's just the way it is. And at the same time, we should look at trials, not based off of our emotion, like, woe is me, why is this happening? It's going to happen, we know that, and so we want to look at our trials from a proper perspective, from the, from the standpoint that God uses them to our advantage, and that advantage is that it makes us more like him. That is the end goal for God. And so when we encounter trials, we see that James points out the assistance that we have, which is reaching out to God and trusting that God ultimately knows what's best. We go to God for wise counsel, and God helps us endure and get through our trials. So if we remember what James teaches us, we can have pure joy, a calm gladness, and hopefully we can rejoice in our trials, always knowing that ultimately God knows what's best, God is sovereign, and God wants what's best for us. And so may we learn from James that we can rejoice in our trials going forward. So we'll pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for the book of James, um, the letter that he wrote to his audience. Um, it's timely, of course, now, um, as it was then. And it's very easy for us to um, feel the weight of the various trials that we're in. All of us encounter trials in various ways, but you say that they are necessary to build the character that you desire in us. And so may you help us to prioritize your will over our own. May you give us the endurance that we need um, daily to approach the difficulties that we have in life from the right perspective, Father. And may you help us to always seek you for wisdom um, so that we can persevere. We thank you for your patience with us, Father. May you give us wisdom and clarity um, and thought so that we may live according to um, your teachings. Jesus, we pray. Amen.